0: I'm Randy, the pastor half of the podcast, and my friend Kyle's a philosopher. This podcast hosts conversations at the intersection of philosophy, theology, and spirituality.
1: We also invite experts to join us, making public a space that we've often enjoyed off-air around the proverbial table with a good drink in the back corner of a dark pub.
0: Thanks for joining us, and welcome to A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar.
1: On this episode, we're talking with Lisa Sharon Harper, Who is a public theologian and activist, uh, somebody that I've been following on Twitter for quite a while. We've been excited to get her on the show or to try to get her on the show since we literally one of the first names I think we put on our list. And she just came out with a book um, very shortly before we recorded this interview called Fortune How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. And it's I won't do it justice in <laughs> <Yeah, laughs> trying to yeah. sum it up uh, in a in a blurb here, but it's it, it takes its starting point from her spending literally decades trying to trace her ancestry and her family's history, but it's also not just a history of her family; it's a history of race in the United States. Um, it's a history of the horrors that. People of European descent have visited upon not just African Americans, but Native Americans and a whole host of others. And it's a a powerful and important interview. I I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it's probably the most spiritual I've felt in in an interview that we've had. Yeah. So there's some, some important and really heavy stuff that you're about to encounter, but yeah I don't know it's it's healing it's cathartic mm-hmm. and it's it's true
0: yeah i mean as reading this book as a white male as a male from european descent uh it was particularly devastating to me it was it was a difficult, painful read in all the right ways in all the ways that we need to be put in painful uncomfortable positions and uh it's it felt like it felt like one of those books where you're beginning to learn the true American history, the history of this nation and what this nation was built on, and how the church was right alongside it, sponsoring it, really. And um, and like you said, Kyle, uh, Lisa is not just an activist, but she loves Jesus. She takes the gospel seriously, mm-hmm. more seriously than probably most of us. And. It's within her hope in the gospel. It's within her hope in the resurrection and in the good news of Jesus and in the kingdom of God and in the Imago Dei. It's because of that that I walked out of this interview and walked out of this book feeling still devastated, still like I just got got punched over and over again. And I'm a boxer. I know how that feels. I walked away with, with hope. Today we have something extra special. I have not supplied it. When I supply it, you know my friend Joe Mensch at Story Hill BKC <laughs> supplied it. So let's let's cheer toast to Joe Mensch at Story and Hill BKC. I'm the, the meal. Meal. <laughs> I'm the meal. It's, that's exactly what I am. So Joe decided to share with us Makers Mark private selection, and it's a Wisconsin select. So this exact bourbon you can literally only find at Story Hill BKC. Hmm. And it's Makers Mark 46. Mm-hmm. So they're their upper echelon. And then they let the, the vendor, so let, let our friends at Story Hill BKC, pick 10 staves that they were going to put into the barrels for nine weeks and age it in that flavor. And so hmm. Story Hill BKC, oh man, I don't have my readers. Damn it. Can somebody <laughs> else read this? I'm old <laughs> enough to need readers, my friend. Just wait. So it's these coming. are the staves they picked? Then, yes. yes. Okay, yes.
1: so we've got four seared French cuvee staves, two makers 46, and four Roasted French Mendiant. I don't even know what that means. Neither do I. We should have done our homework beforehand, <laughs> but
0: that's the flavor that we're going to be taking. So they got to pick what staves go in there. It sat for nine weeks in Maker's Mark Limestone Cellars, mm-hmm. and then they brought it to Wisconsin, and it's available only at Story Hill BKC for a limited time. It's cast strength, by the way. For being cast strength, the nose is so sweet and it's, fruity. It's all the good, dark, luscious fruit. Oh.
1: But, but kind of bright, too. Get some lemon in there. Got some, yeah. got some citrus it's in there. It's
0: like uh, essential oil that squirts <laughs> out of an orange peel when you're making a cocktail. Oh, good lord.
1: Mm. That's nice. Yeah. It is not hot at all no. for the 54.5% that it is. It's delightful. It's darker in
0: color than many. It's very, very complex. Not hot, like you said, for cast strength. Not hot at all when you take it across the palate. But it's this playland of, it's got that dusty, leathery thing on one part of my palette. Then it's got that rich, dark cherry on the other part of my palette. Then it's got the smoke and the, the wood on the other part of my palette. And it's almost all happening at once. It's one of those whiskeys that it yep. doesn't, it's not like a boom, boom, boom. It's like a symphony all at once. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get a lot of maple syrup. Oh, okay. Oh, and interesting. Saffron?
1: I'm gonna look for that. Saffron. Okay, now you're just making shit sure. <laughs> up. <laughs> Hmm. it reminds me of some like double barreled whiskies that I've had, which I guess makes sense if they put extra staves in it to add some extra flavor, I but could it, see like a very fresh wood.
0: Yeah. This is what I want in a in a top shelf whiskey. It's complex. It doesn't like mm-hmm. suck all the life out of you cuz it's so strong. Mm-hmm. No. And there's no one note that overpowers all the rest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Man. Yeah. This is good stuff. So this is something that if you're in Milwaukee or you're visiting Milwaukee and you want to have something to impress people with on the top shelf. This is not super cheap. It's not super expensive. This is about seventy five dollar bottle of bourbon at Story Hill BKC. But this is something to save to impress your friends. This is good stuff.
1: Yeah, or just drink it yourself. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> great it's Impressing it's My friends it. is really <laughs> all I think about doing. Absolutely.
0: And I was also at Story Hill today, and I took a look at their selection, and they have tons of really solid whiskeys at about that thirty dollar price point. They were, I, they have our noteworthy is still there for thirty one oh, bucks. Good stuff. Yeah, they have the whole line of mixers. Buffalo Trace unique stuff is coming to Story Hill. So, mm-hmm. step in a Story Hill, get this Maker's Mark Private Selection, Wisconsin Select for your top shelf, and then fill your middle shelf with all sorts of good stuff at Story Hill BKC. Here you
1: go.
0: Well, Lisa Sheeran Harper, thank you so much for joining us on A Pastor and a Philosopher Walking to a Bar.
2: Thank you. So good to be with you guys. Um, it's a privilege and a joy.
0: Awesome. Lisa, you wrote this book, Fortune, that uh, Kyle and I just had the privilege of reading. And Fortune is, it's one of those books that hits you like a lead weight. I mean, it's just, Mm -hmm. as far as Mm -hmm. being a white American male, I found myself feeling overwhelmed, Mm -hmm. feeling depressed, feeling ashamed in some ways, and not bad ways, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Um, And feeling kind of like reading your book was a cathartic, spiritually cleansing exercise. Wow. Um, and really it felt like I was reading history mm-hmm. of our nation, of my people for the first time in mm. some ways. Wow. It, was that, it was that profound for me. So first of all, thank you for writing that book.
2: Wow. Well, thank you for reading it. Seriously. Yeah. And honestly, yeah. I have to say, one of the most surprising things for me has been the response of men of European descent. As they are reading it, I don't understand. I I, I don't have your same experience, right? Reading it, yeah. and I don't think I could have even predicted that. All I told was what I know. I told the truth mm-hmm. of what I know, and so I would be very interested actually to hear your response and kind of how you're processing it.
0: No, mm-hmm. oh, I'll be processing it for a while. I think mm-hmm. um, in 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 the best ways, and in a number of ways, but. I'd love to just introduce you to our listeners, Lisa, um, who might yeah. not know who you are and sure. where this book came from, because it's a remarkable story of what, where this book was birthed out of.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, my name is Lisa Sharon Harper. You guys know that. Uh, I'm a writer, artist, public theologian, activist, but I, I don't really lead with my activist. I, I am first and foremost a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And so I have a master's degree in playwriting. I wrote a play that won a national award. Mm-hmm. And you know, but then I got very very quickly, you know, I made a choice to go into ministry. And so I was on staff with a college ministry for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And it was there that I really learned how to exegete the scripture and really how to how to dig into the scripture and ask really good questions. The kinds of probing questions that kind of get you different answers than you normally would get actually in Sunday school or youth group, because you're asking the text, not your pastor. What are you actually saying? What do you really mean to be saying? And um, and I think the text speaks back. And so, you know, that's, I am a missionary. I've been a missionary to college campuses. And so um, my faith has really guided me the whole way. And it led me to write the book, The Very Good Gospel, Several years ago, 2016, it came out. And that came out of a journey where I started to be really disillusioned when I realized that the gospel that I was proclaiming on campus was not something that my own third grade grandmother, Leah Ballard, would have jumped and shout about. You know, mm-hmm. it would not have made her rejoice and, and say, This is good news, because it was all about your own individual sin and how Jesus saved you from your own individual sin. And, and when I put that up against her life, um, likely a breeder who, whose job it was on the plantation to breed money for her master, free labor that she would give over to him, her children, she would go give over to him for more free labor for, for their whole lifetimes. Um, you know, If I came knocking on her door and said, you know, great, great, great grandma, Leah, I have good news for you. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life,
0: <laughs> yeah. right?
2: She yeah. would have been like, what are you doing smoking crack? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> um, and and honestly, the realization of that threw me into depression mm-hmm. because I had shaped my whole life around around that understanding of the gospel, that Jesus died to pay the penalty of my sins. And all I need to do is pray this prayer at the back of the gold booklet, and then I get to go to heaven. And it was it was the wrestling in that space over 13 years that led to the very good gospel. And after the Very Good Gospel was done, I wanted to know, okay, so how does this actually work itself out in our lives, in my family? How has, how has the brokenness of shalom manifested in my family? And it wasn't hard for me to, 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 to go dig into that because I had already been doing family research for, at that point, well, still nearly about 30 years, about 25 years at that point. And that family research, when we discovered that the fortune line in our family likely traces to fortune game McGee, um, who would be my seven times great grandmother. And she was born of the union, not marriage, but of course, an affair, actually not, not of course, but it was an affair um, of maudlin McGee and Sambo game, a mixed race couple, Ulster Scott woman and a Senegalese man who came together sometime in 1686, um, she was came on an indenturing ship uh, from from Northern Ireland in 1682. He got here was brought here in 1686, and in 1687, um, Fortune was born. They had this little girl whom they named Fortune, which I thought was amazing. Mm-hmm. But the thing about Fortune is that her mixed race body absorbed the wrath of the very first race laws in the second colony ever, and. And, and that, that, those laws shaped the course of her life and the lives of all of her descendants after her. And when I realized that, I thought, wait a minute. And then in each chapter after that, all of my ancestors lived in times where the questions of race, the questions of human hierarchy were being answered by laws and structures that further entrenched and actually clarified race. And that was impacting their lives. I just said, wait, this is not just my family story. This Mm -hmm. is the story of America Mm -hmm. and race, and it needs to be told. So, okay, let's let's tell it.
0: Wow. So out of that 30-some years of research of your family history, Mm -hmm. going all the way back to the mid-17th century, and probably even a little bit before, Mm -hmm. comes this book about your family slash our nation. And this book and your complex family tree, it's not not just about white europeans enslaving and dehumanizing africans through the slave trade and white supremacy even though that is a large part of it mm-hmm. there's also so much about what white european men did to native americans and the genocide that this nation committed against indigenous peoples here yeah. which is part of your family history as well you you hold in your body the story of two dehumanized and oppressed people groups that have been destroyed by white supremacy and white nationalism and you tell that story in your book so clearly mm. But can you tell us about learning about your ancestors' history and their reality and their, you know, you tell the story of Native Americans Cherokee being, being caged up and men having to listen to their wives and their, their, their women being raped and watching their elderly die of exposure and then being forced mm-hmm. to walk to Oklahoma on the Trail of Tears. These are your ancestors. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just tell us that experience about learning about your ancestors' reality and then your own sense of identity living in this nation?
2: Well, I have to first say that I am talking to you from the land of the Leni Lenape, which is now known as Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and they were here and are here and um, we're all the way up as far north as New York and all the way through um, New Jersey and down into into Pennsylvania as well, Philadelphia. And I say that because to acknowledge, mm-hmm. to acknowledge their stewardship of the land is the first step and healing the break in the relationships, particularly the break that was caused by colonization. So I think that what I've come to understand, and you don't understand this until you actually begin to understand what happened to people of African descent in the context of what happened um, to native people, indigenous people here, Mm -hmm. is that ultimately our, what has been happening on this land is colonization, even the racialization of our nation was something that was a modus operandi of the project of colonization that slavery and and the slave trade and slaveocracy was only a, a system by which colonizers could extract as much profit from the land and and human people like people as possible so ultimately The sin of Europe was the sin of colonization, domination Mm -hmm. of nation over nation, nations over nations. And it it wasn't just racism. I think racism really, really minimizes it in a major way because it's not about people's individual like or dislike of Black people or Native people. It's about the laws. It's about the structures. It's about the economy and, and the way that the laws were set up in order to protect The economic dominance of white men, of men of European descent, Mm -hmm. that they deemed white in order to create a ruling class in America, a nobles' class in America. But in America, unlike in Europe, that class was racialized. So, you know, I, I, so you must, we have to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. Second, I have to say, I am not, I am not a, a member. Of, of any nation, any, any indigenous nation in America. And that's actually made very clear in the first pages of my book. Um, and I I could never be because of the obliteration of, and the confusion of identity that was intentional hmm. by colonizers when they, when they got here. And ultimately when they did round up the, the um, sloggy people, the Cherokee people um, and the Choctaw and the Chickasaw and the Creek Uh, and also the Seminole, when they rounded the people up, they didn't just move them, they then controlled them. They controlled how they could even define who they are. It was never, ever the case before the Trail of Tears, never the case before settler colonization that indigenous people would ever count their blood quantums or had any kind of a role, a roll call for who could, who could identify themselves as native or not. Mm -hmm. That became the case because that was the requirement of the people who won of the colonizers. And the reason why they did that was explicitly their, their policy was to breed them out. Their policy was to commit, if not physical genocide, which they in, I they—they mean, they really did. Um, t- for all intents and purposes, when they first got here, you know, not even Columbus, because Columbus never stepped foot here on this on this on, on, on North America. But when the first explorers came here, there were, they say, a hundred million indigenous people who lived on this land between North, Central, and South America. By the time um, we came into the twentieth century. We had only a hundred thousand left, a hundred thousand. So, and that's not, and like, look, that's just years from the removals. So, by the time you get to the removals, you just, you just, we've already had genocide. So, the policies by that point were no longer about killing all Native people, especially around the 1880s, 1890s, when the final Dawes Rolls were actually um, set up, and the Dawes Rolls were this really a roll call of all of the Cherokee people. And also there are Dawes rolls that list for pretty much all the five tribes that lived in the five nations that lived in the, in the Southeast. They basically say, these are the people who made it to the end of the trail. These are the people who lived through it and also who didn't escape. And the way that America decided, America now would decide who can be counted as a Cherokee person or a Chickasaw person or a Choctaw person, was that if they were on that roll, then they could could be counted as a member of the tribe. Well, you know what that did? It literally cut off for all time anyone who said no to the oppressor, Hmm. anyone who refused to be parted from the land, anyone who defied and stood up and said, I will not go, which was a lot of people, a lot of people. In Kentucky, in the Kentucky hills where my ancestors were in the Lawrence chapter, there were just all kinds of people who just never, they didn't even escape the trail. They just never went on the trail. They went into the hills and they hid and they assumed other identities. By the time, you know, the the census comes around after the civil war, they're listing themselves as white. But when you look at the Dawes rolls, you'll find their surnames are on the Dawes rolls. They just didn't go right? Mm -hmm. These were the names that the Cherokee people had adopted in that area. And so that's what I found when I checked the Dawes Rolls, that my own ancestors' surnames were right there. They're on the Dawes Rolls. In terms of there are people on the other side who did walk, who suffered that degradation and that absolute torture, 800 miles in a blizzard, Mm -hmm. 16,000 walked, 4,000 thousand died. And they made it to the end. And when they listed their names, their surnames matched the surnames of the people in the community that my ancestors lived in. And so, you know, I can't say, I mean, I just, I cannot say with assurance, yes, they were Native or no, because, because of intent. It was the intent of settler colonists that I would not be able to list it. To trace my identity, and part of it is that identity gives strength. Identity gives a core. Knowing who you are is something nobody can take from you once you have it. Mm-hmm. So the 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 goal for domination was first to confuse identity, and they did it. They did a great job.
0: Mm-hmm. So I want our listeners to who haven't read the book yet to just. You know, we're talking about deeply weighty things and you can hear it on our voices probably. And I just want you to know, once you read the book, you'll understand why. Um, and you should read the book. This is, a, this is one of those books that white Americans need to read, particularly as we have the lunacy of the CRT witch hunts happening and politicians and Christians and churches trying to whitewash our history once again, even though I would have told you in college, my, my favorite subject was American history, right? Yeah, it was, it was it was fun. Like American history was really fun when I was in college <laughs> and in, in high school. It was fun because it didn't tell any of these goddamn stories. It didn't, it didn't tell the real story. In yeah. American history, when you read it from books like yours and, and others, it's a series of gut punches each page. Mm. And dealing with that reality just totally changes the way I see our nation. And so I'm wondering from you, Lisa, you're an American. Yes. We talk about... Patriotism. We had a our, our most listened to episode was on nationalism and patriotism, and I'm wondering how do you feel come every Fourth of July or you know Memorial Day when flags are flying and fireworks are blasting and people are you know eating hot dogs and drinking beer and celebrating our nation and getting all patriotic. What I'm wondering is is patriotism a white privilege?
2: Um, patriotism is anathema to the gospel. Patriotism offers the possibility that country can be placed above God. And the reality of God is that God is not contained by borders. God's concern for particular people is not contained by passports or nationality. God cares for the image of God everywhere, mm-hmm. everywhere. And so I love America my ancestors have literally fought in almost every war, mm. literally every war, mm. including the revolutionary war,
0: Incredible, right? War of
2: 1812 revolutionary war, civil war. In fact, Henry and three of his brothers all fought in, in the um, black regiments in the civil war and all four of them survived. That's some mean people. <laughs> <laughs> we, we're some strong stock. Right. And so, <laughs> You know, like my uh, Hiram Henry's son was in the Spanish-American War. My uncle Marshall and my grandfather Austin fought on the front lines in Germany, in both of them in Germany and wow. in France um, in World War II. So, I, I mean, I am—we are Americans. Yeah, yeah. We are absolutely Americans, but. When you go back to the very first race law that was ever created on this land, 1662, Virginia, it was created in response to a court ruling that was handed down in 1650 and, actually, and all that came after that court ruling. So in 1650, a, a girl named Elizabeth Key takes her case to court. She's enslaved by her father, Thomas Key who at some point in his life was actually a member of the House of Burgesses, the legislature in that colony. And he recognized her. He was actually forced by the colony to recognize her as his daughter and have her baptized. So he had her baptized. Well, homegirl came back and she said, wait a minute now, because uh, doesn't the English law, and this is an English colony, doesn't British law say that you can't enslave another British citizen? And um, doesn't British law say that citizenship is determined by the line of the father. Well, um, my father, who just recognized me as his daughter, is a British citizen. And so I should not be able to be enslaved. Oh, and and by the way, I am also baptized. So she took that case to court and she won her freedom. And many other people then took their cases to court when they said, wait a minute, um, my dad is an English citizen too. That means I shouldn't be able to be enslaved. And so they did. And they weren't only black. They were also Native American because Native Americans were being enslaved around that time as well. And so next thing you know, 12 years later, the House of Burgesses, which is the, the planter class, right? Um, they're the ruling class that were granted the land, but now they, they were using free labor in order to, to increase their profits. They look up and, and their profits are, are leaving the plantation. They're, they're leaving. They're like, I'm done. Peace out, y'all. <laughs> I'm a British citizen. You can't enslave me. I'm a Christian. You can't enslave me. And so what do these law-abiding, law-loving men do? Changed they changed the law. The law. Yeah. Changed it. The, in order to be able to keep their profits. They were like, oh, no, no, no. We're not going to break the law and make you you know, stay and, 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 and um, be enslaved, um, even though the law says you shouldn't. No, no, no. We're just going to change it. And they chose Pardis, the Roman law of partus, which places the, the, the citizenship status of the child through the line of the mother not the father. So what did this allow them to do? It allowed the planter class, which was also the legislative class, to continue to rape their enslaved African women with impunity and thereby breed free labor. And then they use the two words in perpetuity, meaning forever. So if your ancestry through your mother's line traces back to a black woman in in this construct, then you will be enslaved. Why? Because you are not a citizen. So isn't it interesting that in the very first race law, you actually also have the very first citizenship law passed on the soil. And you have the very first gender law as well, having to do with gender. Now, so what does this tell us? It tells us that from the very beginning, the very beginning, like literally this is 1662. This is only what less than about 50 years from from the establishment of the very first colony this this same colony virginia mm-hmm. so within 50 years of the establishment of the first colony they have already determined by law people of african descent are not going to be citizens we are not citizens mm-hmm. and that that my brothers has been our struggle ever since mm-hmm. That because the question of citizenship is the question of rights, the right to flourish. The question of citizenship is the question of the ability to exercise dominion on the land, to make decisions that impact the land. And from the very, very beginning, the men of European descent who came here cordoned off the question of dominion and placed a sticker on it and said, for whites only.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But we know from scripture, right, the very first page of the whole Bible says that all humanity was created to exercise dominion. So really, brothers, this is not this was not just racism. This was a war against God for supremacy. Mm-hmm. That's what we're really talking yeah. about. We're talking about war with God for supremacy.
0: Wow. Yeah. yeah. As we're we're talking about colonization and in the book, you do a great job of talking about how the goal of colonization is fragmentation, but this mm-hmm. idea of European colonization and white supremacy, you go back to the church, that it was born out of the church, right? Where you mm-hmm. st- speak specifically of the 15th century edict by Pope Nicholas V, Romanus Pontifex. Can you mm-hmm. tell us about that and how that changed the course of history?
2: Yes. Well, I have to go back a little bit before that, actually, to give you some context, so the, the construct of race, um, as far as I've been able to trace it in the Western, Western culture, um, it, you can trace it back to Plato. So Plato, in his book, The Republic, Plato says that there's this thing called race. And race is the different metals that different people groups are made of. And some people are made of gold, others copper, tin. And whatever metal you're made of determines how you serve society, how you will serve the republic. So gold people do these kind of jobs, silver people do these kind of jobs, and so on and so forth. It's, it's debatable whether or not there was actual hierarchy there, but it didn't take long. So 10 years later, his acolyte, Aristotle, comes along and he writes his book on politics. And in on politics, he says, if you have if you're a conquered people, then you are, you have demonstrated that you were created to be enslaved. Wow. So he's now giving justification for slavery, for enslavement. It was not the same kind as that we experienced here, but it is justification nonetheless. He's also creating a hierarchy of human belonging, right? So now we have, and he also, he hated the barbarians, right? So he was also, he also would always call like, the barbarians are kind of a lesser race. They're like the bar, 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 like, you know, they he made fun of them basically. And so, but now, now, Flash forward a thousand years and you get Pope Nicholas V. And Pope Nicholas V has a, has a friend of the family who comes you know, to visit. And the family friend says, hey, Pope, I need, I need a blessing. I'm going to go exploring. And the Pope says, hey, I'll give you a blessing. And I'll even do you one better. If you come across land that is not civilized or Christian, then you can claim that land for the throne and enslave its people. Now I ask you. Was he operating according to scripture or was he operating according to something else? I look at the first page of the Bible and it says clearly that if you are human, you are made in the image of God and you are created to exercise dominion in the world. Mm -hmm. So it was not Bible. At least it was not pre fall Bible, but what it definitely is, is it, it mirrors Aristotle. It mirrors Aristotle's declaration that there are people who were created to be enslaved right and and for the pope it was if you're not civilized and and of course he gets to decide who's not civilized and if you're not christian right so so if you're not christian you were created to be ruled so it's going you can trace it back there so and and that that's why get this so the second colony ever that's Maryland, when they create their race laws two years after Virginia, they're trying to solve for an, an, literally the opposite problem that Virginia was trying to solve for. Virginia was trying to solve for mixed race children created from um, white planter class men raping their enslaved African women. In Maryland, it was the exact opposite it was white indentured women who were falling in love with and marrying enslaved Black men and having mixed race children. So that, of course, got to the egos of the planter class men. And it also confused the racial hierarchy that was still being developed. And um, what did they say? They said, White women, if you marry and have children by enslaved black men, you yourself will be enslaved. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, wow. That just tells you how white white women really are. They're <laughs> only as white as they as much as they protect the egos of their white men Whoa. hello
1: Whoa. and
2: they protect the, the supremacy of white men yes yeah. and and then and if not may as well be black cuz you're going to be enslaved wow. so and they were they actually enslaved many white women in that period and, and they added those two words and their children shall be enslaved in perpetuity -hmm. And so, but I say this because a few years later, they realized that now, you know, white male planter class men were saying, Oh, we can we can actually get a increase our profit line here, because of course that's all that really matters. And so they actually forced their indentured Ulster Scott and Irish women to marry, ens- marry enslaved Black men and have children with those men so that they would be in de- um, enslaved to them and their children would be in- enslaved to them in perpetuity. And so the, the legislature looks up a few years later and says, uh, we didn't really know that was going to happen, even though honestly they were the ones doing it. And so they said, okay, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to take the keys of indenture and enslavement out of the planter's hands. And now we're going to place those keys in the hands of the church. Uh
0: Mm -hmm.
2: So the church is now going to become the manager of the crushing of the image of God on this land. Mm -hmm. And that was the case through this revolutionary war for about a hundred years.
1: Yeah. You know, Lisa, it's interesting I'm a philosopher, so anytime somebody references Plato, I get a little bit excited. I know, right? That passage you cite in the Republic, and I don't think this makes it better at all, so I'm not defending Plato here. That parable or metaphor or whatever of the metals is in the context where we get the concept of the noble lie from, which is this Mm -hmm. ancient debate still ongoing about whether the best thing to do for a state leader is to present false images to the people because they're not philosophers and not capable of understanding and working within the truth and so we mm-hmm. present to them a false set of images that will allow them to become virtuous and flourishing to the extent that they that mm-hmm. they can mm-hmm. and that idea comes from that story of the metals so plato is presenting it as a lie
2: oh that's interesting i i didn't read it that way i read it i read it straight you know i read it like from yeah. the words on the page when he literally says Gold people serve the society in this way. Copper yeah. people serve the society in that way. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, so this kicks off a centuries-long debate between uh, some who are like Leo Strauss, who argue that this is actually the best way to proceed—to to lie to the people knowingly—and then others who who deny that. You can guess which side Aristotle would have been on. Uh, wow. So no, I don't think that makes it better, but but that's an extra little layer to that onion.
2: It's a really, honestly, it's a, it's a great, it's a great layer. And I'd love to, I'd love to look into that more. And one of the things that, that, that strikes me is that, you know, we're talking about Plato, Aristotle, we're talking about the Greek empire. We're talking about the Roman empire, which used the, the philosophies that were developed in that Greek empire, like that, that ruled it. And we're, we're looking at the, the question of empire was understood at that time as a peacemaking venture. You know, they, they, they saw themselves as making peace through conquering, Mm -hmm. through domination. And I mean, even up to the English, the British empire, they saw themselves, you know, the Commonwealth was a way to create peace in the world. That was one of their justifications for it, but it's never peaceful for those who are conquered. Mm -hmm. It's never, it's never from the perspective of those whose hands are tied and whose women and children are raped and whose bodies are exploited for the labor that you can bilk from it. Oh, that is not peace.
1: Not good news. Yeah. yeah. No. So let's zoom out just for a second and want to ask a more general question about sort of the place that your book maybe falls in the current cultural conversation that, that I think a lot of maybe post-evangelical or becoming post-evangelical Americans are having. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that in recent years, there've been a flurry of books that are in some ways similar to yours. And they've kind of, mm-hmm. they've been received as, I don't want to say they actually are this, but they've been received as lightning rods for various kinds of social tensions, mostly around race, gender, and sexuality. And we've actually been fortunate to have several of the authors of those books on our show. So we've talked with Kristen Dumais, uh, Beth Barr, Duke Kwan and Greg Thompson, Dante Stewart, mm-hmm. Kat Armas Dominique Gilliard, and recently Bridget Rivera. And now we're talking to you. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think these books have, they're all very different, but they, they also have a common thread. And I think that common thread is that they all have a strong emphasis on history. Some of them explicitly mm-hmm. so, because they're written by historians and they're academic and that's just their goal. Kristen's right. book and Beth's book, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. but all of them in one way or another make their case by telling usually overlooked or buried stories from the past. Mm -hmm. And it's just remarkable to me as an academic, as someone who's interested in the truth and exploring questions for their own sake. It's remarkable to me that books with usually such simple aims as here's a story you may not have heard before cause such furor, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So your book does this by recounting the complex and uncertain story of your own past in your Mm -hmm. quest to understand it as we've talked about. So Mm -hmm. can you say a little bit about the importance of history and Mm -hmm. of telling stories from the past for understanding and making progress on the forms that racism takes today? But also, why do you think the past is apparently so threatening to the people who wish to maintain the status quo or who wish to urge caution and patience?
2: I don't think it's the past. I think it's the story that's threatening. I think that the story that we tell ourselves about who we are and how we got here in large part is what is what gives us the, the perceived strength of America, right? It is the hot dogs and apple pie. It is this, the image of the white women with the curled hair and the, and the, the A-line um, skirts in the 50s um, and the high heels and the pointy breasts Mm-hmm. um, you know, who are serving dinner on a tray to their, their, their husbands and their sons around the table. And, and, and they have a one car garage because everybody has a one car, they own two cars at that point. Um, and they have 1.2 kids, um, <laughs> and, um, and they have a dog named spot and, you know, it's father knows best. Yep. And it's, it's the stories that we've told ourselves about ourselves, That um, have shaped the identity, the understanding of who we are as a nation, that has always, from go in this nation, has always privileged, not just privileged, but centered and really obliterated all other stories, centered the perspective of white men. And, And not just perspective, the stories spun by white men. And in order to protect white men's sense of self and white men's power, the power they gained through the domination, economic domination, social domination, political domination, and civic domination. So, And that's over the course of, what, 500 years, right? So um, for, for African-Americans, 400 years. So you have this history that has been spun. And of course, it's you're going to leave out the enslavement of white women if you're a white man, <laughs> Come on, right? If you want to, if you want to be able to get married and and have white women trust you, you're going to leave that part out. Of course, you're going to leave out the the laws that that literally created um, the hierarchy of human belonging in the post Civil War um, years. You're going to leave out the fact that um, in South Carolina, you only allowed people of African descent to work in two by law in two uh, fields of work in industries, either field labor or domestic labor no that was not an inherent thing but see to tell that part of the story would then be to to reveal to your children how you did it how it is that they're the only it is only white people in their schools it is only uh, they are they are the ones who get the jobs it's not because they're actually the smartest or the strongest it's because the others have been subjugated by law right so but to tell that part is actually then to to weaken, to weaken white men in their own conception of self. And that just can't be not according to the to the past, not according to the to the story that we've been that we've been told, that has been told. So thankfully, in the last thirty years, um I'd say since roots, since we had Roots come out, which was the very first time in American history that America actually saw. The story of people of African descent before slavery, first time that it was actually told by a black person, and what was it? It was his family history, or at least as much as he could, as much as he could gather, and then other stories to to fill it in, right? So, you know, at that point in the 1970s when that came out, there was no such thing as African American studies. Like they did, there was there was no discipline. Called African American Studies. There was no such thing as African American history. We didn't even ha- celebrate MLK. Like we didn't, you know, that's how this is a new development in the last 30 to 40 years that you now have people of African descent who have been able to study, like go in and actually search for the stories themselves. And I'll tell you what, for me, and I think that I think this is a growing. There's a growing acknowledgement of the legitimacy of the history that is unearthed, not just legitimacy, but legitimate historical work that is done through genealogy. And I mean, I just couldn't believe how many primary documents I was looking at that was telling me a story that I never heard before. Mm-hmm. Um, the story of Henry, right? and and the fact that he it took him decades to get his pension after the civil war. And I found out in the course of that research, that was the norm for men of African descent who fought on the battlefield, turned the course of the civil war. America would not be America without black men who finally in the end, you don't also don't hear this, they were the ones who surrounded General Lee, hunted him down and forced his surrender. It was black, almost every black regiment in the army Was called to to follow all the the northern generals, the Union generals, at that time, and they were the ones. So you don't hear that story, and I learned that because I did family history. So I think there's there's a growing tide of uh, really an awakening to the legitimacy of genealogy as history telling, as storytelling, and not just story weaving, but rather telling. This is what happened. Now, of course, there are holes. I am not a trained historian, nor do I ever claim to be. And so I, I am not trying to write a history book. I'm trying to tell tell the story. Of my, I'm trying to find mm-hmm. the story of my family and share what I found. And because of the domination of colonizers that obliterated, sought to obliterate our stories, it is quite the quest. Uh, one of the things that, that, again, blew my mind when I was doing this research was in the early 1700s, the decision was made in Maryland, again, the second colony, that they would not, they were going, they, they finally by law passed a policy that now we, we were going to record the births and deaths of our citizens. But in that same law, they actually said, and I read it, I read it in the law, we're not going to record the births and deaths of black people, people who are not white. They gave no real justification except for this, it's not worth our trouble. Mm -hmm. So because of that decision point that they made, it's not worth their trouble. And we're not even just talking about enslaved people or even indentured. We're talking about free black people like my five times great aunt, Betty, right? Or my four times great uncle, Humphrey. They would not have had their births and deaths recorded simply because, and they were free and they owned land, but just simply because they were deemed black. So our subjugation, even if you were free, at the very least, the confusion of identity, the confusion of story was something that is woven through all of our stories.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I want to say when I had the experience reading the book, Lisa, where I had a tendency for a little bit to just relieve myself by saying, this is a Southern thing. This is a white Southern thing, right? You know, um, and my roots go back to Germany and Finland. And I'm all of my ancestors from what I know have lived in the Midwest, Northern part of America. And so it's always been easy for people like me to just dismiss it as a Southern problem. Mm -hmm. But a couple of years ago, I did a sermon series about our city, which is Milwaukee, which is the most segregated city in the nation. And, Mm we basically just exegeted our city and what's the history of it how did we get to where we are and how, what is god's dream for milwaukee mm. and what we found was it's not just a southern thing right i mean right you didn't milwaukee didn't have to deal like you have to figure out how to integrate and how to how to live together because there were no black people in in the north until the great migration and then when that happened my ancestors made a decision to ghettoize black americans mm. and to redline and literally there're exactly. still there're still in the books laws about who can and can't own property here who can and can't live here and it's all about people of color can't live mm-hmm. here and so in and then the judges and the police chiefs were in white white nationalist racist clubs and organizations the people in power were were tied to the hip of the kkk the story goes on so mm-hmm. If you find yourself as a white Northerner, or Midwesterner, or whatever it is, saying, Oh man, I'm so glad my ancestors don't go back to the white South, we're not off the hook. No,
2: <laughs> <It's just laughs> no not at all.
0: In that, in it, in equated to my city being the most segregated city currently in America. And now we've got to figure out what, how to, how to repent of that and how to, how to repair that, like you talk about in the second half of your book.
2: Yeah. I love, thank first, first of all, thank you very much for saying that. And I mean, My family's story starts in the South, but actually starts in in Africa um, in Senegal and Nigeria and other places. And it goes through Barbados and into the South um, in the times of colonizing, uh, colonial slavery and also antebellum slavery. But then it very quickly, because of the Great Migration, moves north. And it's in that that move that we begin to see how, how racialization and human hierarchy of belonging is taking shape in the North. And you're exactly right. Redlining is a major thing. And here's the thing. It's not just a thing. It's not just like one thing that happened. Okay. So some people redlined. No, it was all over the country because it was federalized in 1933 with the event of the Federal Housing Authority. And the Federal Housing Authority, when it was crafted, the person who crafted the algorithm was a segregationist. And one of the things that he put in that algorithm was that if there was even one person of African descent, one Black person in your community, the land value of your entire community would automatically be lower, automatically. Now, I'm a homeowner. I don't want my home to be, my my land to be, you know, lowered. That's one of the reasons why you buy a home, to invest, right? So, So it's not even just about like bad people. What it is, is about bad policy. It's about policy that creates a wave then of domination and subjugation and and separation because who wants their land value to go down? Nobody. But it also has consequences because the consequence of that is that now you have whole areas where people of African descent are not allowed to live outside of that red line. And when you do, when you have even one, the land value goes down. So if you have a whole community that is is African-American, according to the federal algorithm, the land value then plummets. And it has nothing to do with how well people keep their homes or, or anything or amount of land. Nothing. It just has to do with the fact that somebody with brown skin is living on the land. And so then what does that do? If you have land, if your whole community has your, your land is worth less. Guess what? The way that we set up how the education system is funded is according to land taxes. So that means that you're going to have less money to then go around to at least as many children and usually more because you have more renters in that area, more children using less money um, to pull from in order to buy their books, in order to secure their teachers, So you end up having less qualified teachers because they're not being paid as much and no books. And that's what you, you know, you see this, oh, you see this so clearly with my mom's story, Um, Sharon, the story of Sharon, you know, she's one of the brightest children, literally one of the smartest kids in her class. There's three honor students in her class. She's one of them. And um, so what does she get to do? She doesn't get to learn. She gets to run errands for her teacher. So her teacher puts her on an errand because that was the normal course of a day. My mom would run errands for the teacher all over the all throughout the day. And one day she's sitting in the principal's office waiting for the principal to respond to a message that her teacher sent to the principal and she's sitting next to a box of books and she leans over and looks at the books and these books are tattered. They don't have covers. They're missing pages. There's writing in them. There's literally about two or three generations that have used these books. And the books still have the label from the school that they came from. They came from the Drexel school, which is two blocks away. And the Drexel school was the white school. Right across the street, my mom lived right across the street from child school, which is the black school. And my grandmother, Willa, tried to get my mom into the Drexel school two blocks away. And they told her she's out of district. Mm -hmm. But guess what? The little Italian boy who lived right next door to my mom, he went to the Drexel school Mm -hmm. because it wasn't out of district for him. Mm -hmm. And so the, the question of our education and education sets you up. Education prepares you prepares you for something that your society wants you to do. Mm -hmm. It's either going to prepare you to lead, or it's going to prepare you to consume, or it's going to prepare you to uphold the economy through cheap and no-cost labor. And how best to do that than through prison? And so the, the Black schooling public school system, the segregated public school system in the North prepared people of African descent to either be consumers, but more than likely to be to be free and no cost labor just as they were in the South mm-hmm. through prison.
0: Yep.
1: Yeah. So I think this is relevant. In chapter seven of the book, you cite a study from PRI, and this was a 2018 study that mm-hmm. found, and this is a remarkable statistic, found that 51%, I went and looked it up so I could know the exact mm-hmm. figures, 51% of white Americans in 2018, okay, think that things have mostly gotten worse in the United States since the 1950s. It's amazing. Let that sit for a second. Uh, This is the decade, as you point out in the book, that Emmett Till was murdered, segregation reigned, redlining reigned, LGBTQ and disabled people didn't have any rights either. Mm -hmm. Um, And 51%, that's most white Americans four years ago, said Mm -hmm. things have gotten worse since then. You can imagine they, how the numbers look different from from non non white Americans, right?
2: Right. And I would just say, just I mean, really what they were asking them was, do you long for the fifties? Mm-hmm. Right. Do you long for the fifties? And yeah, 51% said, Yeah, I long for the fifties. Yeah. I long for Daddy Knows Best. I long for happy days. I long for that narrative, that story.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that should give us some pause, right? Because, you know, we've you've talked a lot about policies and name, mm-hmm. named some concrete examples and talked to us about the history of those things. And I can hear some people, people that I know personally that I can think of, and uh, certainly people that I've read online that would hear something like that and say, yeah, but, you know, we had the Civil Rights Act and we had the Voting Rights mm-hmm. Act and it's 2022 and the policies have changed. And so if that's if that was the problem, then... What's the big deal? Um, mm-hmm. But this is a recent study, and <laughs> it turns out that most white Americans would like to go back to those policies.
2: Yeah, and I mean, and, and not also, yes, that was a recent study. It's recent uh, taking the pulse of white America, but you can go to policies, right, that are even more recent. Mm-hmm. I mean, what happened then, and redlining was eventually outlawed, but it, the practice didn't end right? So just in 2014, a bank in New York state was was taken to court um, because it redlined. Just a few years ago, another bank was taken to court because it redlined. So redlining is still happening today. And if it's not redlining, it's community covenants. It's those kinds of things. And on top of that, then you also have to add what we have to talk about is the drug wars and mass incarceration and three strikes laws and what they called back then child predators and the the animalization of Black children that really just mimics the criminalization of Blackness that was placed into the law in the years after Reconstruction when peonage was the thing and convict leasing was the practice, um, a way to increase the bottom line of a state was to add to the number of people who are offering no cost and and low cost labor through imprisonment. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Nixon, Nixon's legislative director, John Ehrlichman said, really confessed in 1995 that Nixon launched the drug wars, not at all to have anything to do with drugs, had nothing to do with drugs. It was about crushing his political opponents and who he named as black people and hippies. So the drug wars that, that were launched by Nixon and carried forward by Reagan, the only reason they were, they were there was to break up Black families. And those laws had consequences. I mean, those laws literally broke up not only Black families, but Black communities. And they didn't, they weren't just laws on the books, there was practice that went with them as well. Drugs were literally pumped into heroin, pumped into. Black communities throughout the 70s and into the 80s. Crack was pumped into Black communities. And I know because I'm sitting in one of the communities where it happened. One block, I'm sitting one block from where my grandmother lived um, with my uncle and my moms, where where they all grew up, where our family was for 70 years. This was an area where Black children, Black boys sang doo-wop on the corners in the 50s. This is the area, this is the city where Gladys Knight comes from here, right? This is the city where, I mean, you just had a lot of amazing talent um, come through here. In fact, John Legend even went to Penn, right? So like a lot of amazing talents. So, black boys would sing doo-wop on the corners in the, in the 1950s and 60s. In the 70s, heroin was pumped into this area and Black men dropped like flies from overdoses. And they were swept up out of the streets and put into prison. And my uncle was among them. He died of an overdose one block from here. In the 80s, Reagan did the same thing. He pumped this community full of crack and then declared war on drugs to have um, really to crush his own. Same, same, same MO, to crush his political opponents. What's the impact of that? My grandmother was literally beaten to death by a crack addict in this community. And I came back here in around 2000, when I spoke for my cousin's church, which is like right around the corner from where I'm living now. And when we were leaving, we drove through a community and I just, all I could think was what happened here? Because it really literally, I mean, I'm watching the, the images in Ukraine right now. This neighborhood looked like Ukraine does right now. It looked like it had been bombed out. Like there were doors with no doors, windows with no windows boarded up homes. Just what happened? Because this was a teeming, amazing, beautiful, powerful Black community back when I was coming here as a child to visit my grandmother. But now it was absolutely gutted. And you ask anybody around here what happened, and they will tell you. The drug wars happened. Drugs happened. Black men died. They dropped like flies from overdoses. That's what happened and families were thrown into absolute poverty and the area itself was left to neglect. The city didn't do anything for decades, just let it rot. And then when the time was right, they whispered urban renewal and urban renewal meant urban removal of those black families. They began to go around knocking on doors. Do you want to sell your home? Do you want to sell your home? And of course they, they bought their homes for dirt cheap. They would buy Lots of land here on the land where I'm sitting. In fact, this home was, I think the lot was bought for $12,000. $12,000 in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Okay. $12,000. It sells now for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Hundreds of thousands. The same, not just my house, but all of the houses in this neighborhood. I mean, they are. This is hot property and they're, they're flipping it. They're building like, as if it's like pancakes, they're flipping the pancakes. And there's lots of dogs and dog grooming shops and lattes. And there's now a Starbucks and, you know, but that's only now that there's white people. Mm -hmm. So the question of human hierarchy of belonging is one that we have to ask. Not only just of ourselves, because again, this is not really about us. It's not about you. It's not about whether you're you know, racist or what. It's about, do we want a society where everyone can flourish? Mm -hmm. What do we really want?
1: So to close our time here, Lisa, I want to go to the church. We haven't talked a whole lot about the church, but you've got some stuff to say about it in the book. And I want to quote something you say in chapter eight and get your thoughts on it. So, you say the Apostle Paul lists lying as one of a handful of sins worthy of hell. Lies break and block peace from entering the world. They sow confusion and obstruct the reign of God, which is characterized by shalom. At the heart of shalom is truth. Truth telling and integrity are basic requirements for healthy relationships. Without truth, trust is broken. Without trust, relationships are broken individual, communal, and systemic relationships. So good. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I think your book is an exercise in telling the truth. And you've got some beautiful Mm -hmm. and challenging things to say in that chapter about the relationship between truth, humility, faith. These are all things we talk about a lot on this podcast. Mm -hmm. So tell us what you mean in that passage. And also right after that, you say truth-seeking is a spiritual practice.
2: Yeah, it really is. My mom used to sing over me when I was a little girl. and She would sing the song, Wait in the Water. And that song um, was a song that enslaved people would sing just before somebody was going to try to break free. And they would sing, Wait in the water. Wait in the water, children. Wait in the water. God's going to trouble the water. Jeez. And the waters were understood to be troubled. Because, you know, look, if you ride if you run in north from South Carolina in those waters, you don't know what you're going to come up against. Water moccasins, yes. snakes, you know, all kind of cray cray. And if you're in, in Florida or Georgia, you might come against alligators. I mean, you know, it's troubled waters, but there's no way for us to get free without going through the troubled waters. So the process of truth-seeking and truth-listening and truth-telling is the process of wading into troubled waters. You do not know what you're going to find. You don't. And I can guarantee you that what you find will challenge the narratives, the stories you've been told about who you are and how you got here. But friends, we live, we live caged by these stories. Mm. We live shackled to perennial violence because of these stories. Spin, spun stories. Let me tell you about spin. I, I went on a pilgrimage from the Whitney plantation in Louisiana through Sugarland in right outside of Houston, Texas. To San Antonio to the border. This is in 2018. And when I got to Sugarland, it blew my mind because Sugarland is right outside of Houston. And this is the place where they had convict leasing and they had a bunch of basically prisons that were actually plantations. And they would sweep up men off, black men off the street, just for sitting on a park bench for too long, for standing on his porch and like people watching for um, looking a white man in the eye, they would literally take him, sweep him off the street, put him in jail. And that jail was a plantation where he needed to then work for free. And because they could get like really an an infinite number of black men to fill their quota, they didn't take care of them. They just, they used them and then buried them. They literally, the policy was to bury them where they drop. Mm -hmm. So, In Sugarland, Sugarland was a basically a community of plantations that were workhouses for convict leased black men around the turn of the twentieth century and late eighteen hundreds. And now, talk about spin, talk about storytelling. Now, it's gated communities. It's communities with streets that are named Plantation Row, that are named Cotton. Court, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is named, it's beautiful, planned community, but under the ground are dead men, dead bodies of Black men who were buried where they dropped. They discovered 95 of those Black men when excavating, when attempting to build a school on top of one of those plantations, and they finally discovered 95 of those men. And they they had to fight to halt the building. And you know where those Black men are stored now? They're stored in a bin on the property. In a bin on the property. So we are a nation that has stored the dead Mm -hmm. under our paved roads and plantation lanes. And because of that we have to fight with violence to maintain to maintain the lie now what would happen though if we let go if we if we laid down our arms what would happen if we if we laid down our weapons our 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 instruments of spin
0: and deceit yeah
2: and deceit and lying what would happen if we embraced truth? Mm-hmm. If Let me tell you what would happen. We would experience more of Jesus. Mm. We would actually experience Come on. the power of the cross, mm-hmm. not just sing about it. We would experience the power of the actual resurrection, not just talk about it. So, the call for repair and the call for truth seeking and truth listening and truth telling is actually a call to come back into relationship. Let's go. And relatedness with Jesus. Because as long as you cover the truth, you don't need God.
0: Mm.
2: (laughs) As long as you live according to the lie. You hold God at bay. Mm -hmm. You hold the power of the resurrection at bay. Mm -hmm. You hold the power of the cross at bay. Yeah. What did Jesus say? I came for the sick, not for those who are pretending to be well. So the call for repair of our nation is actually a call for us to finally become Christian.
0: The book is Fortune, Lisa Sharon Harper it's spectacular thank you for sharing your family story your story the pain the 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 goodness that's come through it and thank you for sharing your time with us tonight it's just been real pleasure man lisa i want to tell you your book is like a spiritual cleansing exercise talking to you it's like a damn spiritual exercise.
2: <laughs> Are all your interviews <laughs> like this? I don't know. Oh my is, gosh! Is norm. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Uh, thank you.
0: Really. Just and <laughs> I, I, I need to process. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: all God right. Bless you. Bless you. Bye bye.
1: Well, that's it for this episode of A Pastor and a Philosopher Walk Into a Bar. We hope you're enjoying the show as much as we are. Help us continue to create compelling content and reach a wider audience by supporting us at patreon.com forward slash a pastor and a philosopher, where you can get bonus content, extra perks, and a general feeling of being a good person.
0: Also, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Spotify. These help new people discover the show, and we may even read your review in a future episode if it's good enough.
1: If anything we said really pissed you off, or if you just have a question you'd like us to answer, or if you'd just like to send us booze, send us an email at pastorandphilosopher at gmail.com.
0: Catch all of our hot takes on Twitter at at PPWBpodcast, at Randy Nye, and at Robert K. Whitaker, and find transcripts and links to all of our episodes at pastorandphilosopher.buzzsprout.com. See you next
2: time. Cheers.